You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I'll invite you to return to Galatians chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 11 and read through verse 14. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We praise you for this letter that you've inspired through the pen of the Apostle Paul, uh, that you've given us uh, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for us. Lord, we thank you for these early battles that took place as the gospel was going forward. Father, we thank you for the many lessons that we can learn from these battles and for their relevance even to the day we find ourselves in. Father, our desire is to to take in everything that you have for us this morning. So, Father, we ask and pray that you'd be pleased to bless us with your truth, bless us with understanding and application of the truth. For your glory in Jesus we pray. Amen. There's a sermon that's sometimes preached over these verses that uh, goes something like this. It'll, it'll say um, hypocrisy is the enemy of the gospel. Um, hypocrisy, that might be the first point, something like that. Hypocrisy is the enemy of gospel. Um, hypocrisy harms others. That might be a second point. And um, if Peter can fall into hypocrisy, so can we. That might make a, a third point or some variation of that. And um, I don't raise that uh, to your attention to say that that's necessarily wrong. Uh, Who would argue that hypocrisy isn't the enemy of the gospel? If we think about Jesus and we think about his earthly ministry, he reserves his harshest rebuke for what? Uh, Hypocrisy. I mean, this afternoon, if you have a minute, just turn to Matthew chapter 23 and take a look at Jesus' rebuke there. Uh, It is scathing. You know, I remember reading that a couple of years ago and saying to Tammy, could you imagine being on the business end of those words when Jesus proclaimed them? It had to have been absolutely horrifying to hear that. Uh, Scathing words uh, directed to hypocrisy. Of course, hypocrisy is the enemy of the gospel. We wouldn't disagree with that, would we? 
By no means. And does hypocrisy bring harm to others? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it here in our text. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we're seeing in verse 13 that uh, Peter's actions, whatever these actions were, whatever they, uh, whatever undermined those actions, we see that others um, acted in step with Peter, even to the degree that uh, Barnabas is led astray. So we see that it has effects on others around us. We see that. Um, and then the third point, well, if Peter can fall into this, so can we. Now, I think you're, you're getting, by the way I'm introducing this sermon, that I do have a little bit of fault with a sermon like that, a sermon that might uh, take these passages and do that with him. And one of the reasons is, is because unless we do the hard work of trying to fully understand just what Peter has done, we can really get the wrong impression of, of the error that Peter is committing here. And if we get the wrong impression of the error that Peter is committing here, we're going to be aloof in terms of application. Application is just going it, it's, it's, to... We might have... The doctrine is right. There's no, there's no problem with that doctrine. But it, is, it, is that really true to this particular text? And I, I want to submit to you that if we do the hard work of trying to understand the historical situation here, we're going to get a holy, we're going to get an altogether different application, and it's going to be one that really speaks to the day uh, that we find ourselves in. There's a couple of questions, you know, about this text. This is not a, this text is deceitfully simple. It looks like on the surface of it, hey, three points sermon on hypocrisy, we're good to go. But as you begin to uh, study this text, this is. A difficult text. For starters, um, when Cephas came to Antioch, we don't know exactly when Cephas is coming. That is Peter. When he comes to Antioch, we're not sure. We don't need to know uh, in order to understand this text. It's not important. What we do know is that Peter is in Antioch. That much is true. And I think the best scenario that I have come across is Peter is in Antioch as Paul and Barnabas return from their first missionary journey. So that would find this taking place in terms of, uh, of Acts. That would be at the end of Acts 14. We know at the very end of Acts 14 that Paul does spend a lot of time in Antioch. Uh, perhaps Peter there. This is just a guess. It's just an educated guess. Perhaps that's when this takes place. Um, in all likelihood, it's taking place in the mid to late 40s A.D., if you will. It's very early in the evangeliz evangelization of the world uh, following Jesus' crucifixion. Now, uh, what we do know, uh, Peter is in Antioch, and we see Paul is opposing him to his face there. And notice the line, at least in the ESV, it says, because he stood condemned. Now, if you've got an ESV, the language is softened quite a bit in the ESV. If I remember right, uh, it says something like he was surely in the wrong or certainly in the wrong or um, something to that effect. Isn't it, Dan? He was certainly in the wrong or clearly in the wrong. You can see that's, that's softened quite a bit uh, from the ESV translators who say condemned. They use the word condemned. And when we're doing serious Bible study, it is, it, it, you know, second to studying the, the, the ancient languages, uh, you know, all of us actually can, can um, acquire a couple of different translations, the NIV, the ESV, the New American Standard, the Old King James, and you can turn them all out and you can look. And in those English versions, you can see kind of a range 
if you will, of the meaning of the words. And it's really helpful to do that sometimes, especially when we get to passages like this. What is Paul saying to Peter? Um, He says that he stood condemned, is what the ESV translation reads. Now, why would the ESV translators use such a strong word? Because the word that Paul is using is a strong word. It is a strong word. I spent a good bit of time studying that word this week. Uh, Really, not so much just looking up its meaning, but looking up its usage in some of the other passages, um, not just in Scripture, because it's only used a couple of times in Scripture, but looking at its usage in other ancient texts. And it's a strong word. It is a really very strong word. And the whole time I'm doing this, I'm thinking in my mind, wait a second. Now, if Peter is, if Paul is saying that Peter is condemned, what is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that there's a possibility that Peter has never been in the faith? Well, currently, he can't be saying that. Uh, Paul says in, in Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Well, certainly Paul's not going that far. Well, then why use the word condemned? Well, it's because it's a strong word. And hold on to this for a moment, because I think Paul is pointing back to verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. And you remember those verses in an earlier message. We looked at those verses. These are really strong. This is really strong language where Paul says, Even if we are in an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul is using strong language in a face-to-face confrontation with the Apostle Peter. This is what's happening here. So uh, I think the ESV translators rightly want us to see the shock factor that all this is. This is shocking. I mean, this is absolutely shocking. We're to be shocked by this. Um, And in verse 12, we get a little more information. Paul says, For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, what's going on here? And in order to understand what's going on here, there's a couple of questions that we need to answer. And these are questions that aren't so easy to answer. Uh, For example, who are these men that came from James? Um, Are they truly representing James? That's one question. Another question is, who is the circumcision party? Are they the same as those who have come from James, is this one in the same? Is this the same group? Is it a different group? Is there a relationship between these groups? And thirdly, what's Peter afraid of? What exactly is Peter afraid of? You see, I think before we can make any application of this text, my argument is we need to answer those questions. Not just look at the word hypocrisy and go off on a three a three point message on hypocrisy. You see how that can go wrong quick like? I think when we begin to answer these questions and we begin to look at these questions, we're going to end up with a, a different application altogether. Not to dismiss the fact is hypocrisy the enemy of the gospel. Amen. I think most of us here in this room, when we find ourselves acting hypocritically, and we all do from time to time, do we not? 
I do. I'll, listen, I'll, you, I do. When we find ourselves doing that, we hate it, don't we? Uh, so we see this hypocrisy and we, we hate this hypocrisy in ourselves. Let us look at it in our own lives before we look at it in anyone else's. That's good advice. I, I've gotten that advice from Jonathan Edwards. As was one of his resolvements is that when he saw the sin of another person, he immediately looked to his own sin. It's a really good practice, actually. Um, it, it, it's a good practice. Um, so let's try to answer these questions. How, how, and one of the reasons I want to take us through this is, okay, when you're studying your Bible and you have questions like this, and a lot of the studying really comes down to asking the right questions. And when you have questions like this, how do you answer questions like that? And let's start with the first question. How do we answer this question of these men come from James? You know, commentaries usually will, will, will be almost in two opposites. Uh, commentaries, some commentaries will say these men from James are sent by James and they communicate, uh, they're communicating James' message. And they're being called to, uh, to, to go up to Antioch and just see how things are going up there. Whereas there are other commentaries that say, no, these guys, these guys are, are troublemakers and they're just claiming to be from James in order to get the credibility to be heard and to accomplish their own agenda. And, you know, you read that and, and, you, and it, that knows, you know, it's like, okay, tomorrow it's going to rain. No, tomorrow it's not going to rain. It's like, okay, which is it? Is it going to rain or isn't it? Are these men from? Are these men communicating uh, James' message? Are they sent, dispatched by James? Uh, how do we answer a question like that from the text itself? What we have right here, uh, we really can't. It's not that clear. Uh, but if we, I think, if we look at a couple of other passages, if you go to Acts um, fifteen, if you will, to a passage we looked at in an earlier message, which is page nine twenty four, if you're using the church's Bible. Um, to answer a question like that, we need to go to passages where uh, we learn uh, how James thinks about issues like this. What's James' position on circumcision, adding circumcision to the gospel? These are the things that we have seen have come up in this, in this letter. Where's James at? Now, we were asking that question a couple of weeks ago. And here we see uh, in this uh, Jerusalem council, if you will... You know, the issue of adding circumcision to faith for salvation has come up to such a degree that the church has called a council and all of these delegates from the churches have met in Jerusalem to discuss this issue. And we have this discussion in Acts 15 and in verse, um, uh, verse 19, we have James' personal judgment on this. In, in verse 19, James says, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, what's that mean? You study the context of Acts 15. What you'll see that means is James' per personal position on this is that we should not ask Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. We can't add anything to faith in Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to preserve in Galatians, isn't it? It can't be faith in Christ plus anything. It can't be faith in Christ plus. It's faith in Christ. We're saved by faith. This is by grace. This is not of our do own doing, right? That's the truth that Paul is, is fighting to maintain here and to preserve. Not only for the Galatians, but also for us. 
As soon as we start adding something to faith, where does it end? And as soon as we add one thing, we're saying that the, that the death of Christ on the cross is insufficient in and of itself. Something else has to be added to it. And I think now we can start to see how doing that is making another gospel. Distorting the gospel ends up making another gospel. Embracing another gospel is turning your back on the one who's called you in Christ. You know, that's what Paul says, isn't it? So this is James' position in verse 19. Now, I want to call your attention to what else James says. Because it's pertinent to our study right now. Notice verse 20. He says, but we should write to them, that is to the Gentiles, to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, much of that is strange to us. I mean, the sexual immorality we get, but the strangled uh, blood, polluted food, polluted by idols is really strange to us. What is all that about? One thing I would point out is a lot of it has to do with, with dining etiquette, doesn't it? Eating animals that were strangled uh, or eating meat that had, doesn't have the blood drained out of it properly. Um, has to do with dining. And this goes back to kosher laws, back to the ceremonial laws of Moses, doesn't it? Um, something we don't think about every day. Did anybody wake up this morning and think about that? This, my guess is no. Uh, probably not. Uh, but my point is, James is speaking as a pastor here, not just a theologian. In terms of theology, in terms of our salvation, it's faith in Christ alone for salvation, right? But in terms of how the Gentiles should get along with their Jewish brothers, he's putting forth some ideas and guidelines for etiquette here, isn't he? You know, we, we want to encourage some scruples. It's kind of what's being said here, isn't it? Now, why? Why? Well, let's imagine. Let's see if we can step into the shoes of the ancient Israelite, if you will. You know, by the time uh, of 40, 45 AD, depending on when you date the Exodus, and we're not going to get into that this morning, uh, or depending on when you date uh, Moses, um, we're going to just say 1,500 years. For 1,500 years, we have had these kosher laws. Uh, we've been observing circumcision longer than that for more than 2,000 years. We've been, as a people, stepping in the shoes of the ancient Israelite, uh, been observing circumcision. You can see, uh, now all of a sudden, okay, here comes Jesus with the message of the gospel, and here we see that salvation is through faith in Christ who comes and lives that perfect life in our place. Okay, you're not just going to take off that heritage you're not just going to shed that heritage uh, right away. Imagine trying to deal with that in your mind. What do we do with Moses? What do we do with the laws? What do we do? You know, you know. sorry, everybody. I know you guys like to just ban from here and go off to the hot dog shop, but I'm just not ready to do that. You can appreciate that. Now, let's add some more things to it. 
during the time, we know, I mean, scholars who study these things tell us, we know that during that time, there was a large, there was an enormous amount of pressure. There was, these, there, there was this, this um, uh, uh, movement, if you will, back to religious identity on part of the Jewish people during that time. I mean, it culminates. It's one of the things that lead to the Jewish revolution against Rome, the, the, the Jewish uh, revolution in Rome. Some of you will be aware of that. That's happening in 66, right around 66 AD. That's probably approximately 20 years from this. Now, in the meantime, you have this, this major push. If we lived in that day, we would be um, finding ourselves more and more motivated to get back to our religious identity, back to circumcision, back to these dietary laws, back to all of these things that, that make us distinct from the rest of the world. And this is part of what the apostles are dealing with as they are evangelizing. Now, we, we get uh, we get a... Um, Kind of a scent of this, if you will. If you go to Acts chapter 21, to that passage we read, in case you were wondering how that had anything to do with our study this morning, uh, page 930, uh, while you're turning to page 930, Acts 21 verse 17, 930 if you're using the church's Bible, not necessarily 930 if you're using your own. All right. <laughs> So, as long as you're using that Bible, we're good, huh? 9.30. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. What's going on here is Paul's returning to Jerusalem, even though um, it's dangerous for Paul to do so. Paul realizes it's dangerous. He realizes going back to Jerusalem could cost him his life. He knows that probably, at the very least, he's going to end up incarcerated. So why does he go back to Jerusalem? Because he knows the Lord's calling him to go back to Jerusalem. And in verse 17, Acts 21, verse 17, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received him gladly. That is the church there. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Notice this is one of the us passages of Acts where Luke is including himself. Luke was present for this. So here James is, and all the elders are present. Now, again, we're going to get the heart of James in this. We're going to see the heart of James. Uh, verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all what? Zealous for the law. This is this pull, if you will, that's happening at this time to get back to the law. And this is a pull that the Jewish believers are experiencing as well as the Jewish unbelievers. You know, it's a social political pull, if you will, that's taking place at this time. Now, here we see they're all zealous for the law. Verse 21. And they have been told about you that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now they've got a problem with Paul, don't they? Because what they're hearing is Paul's telling everybody to disregard the laws of Moses. Now that's not exactly what's happening, is it? Paul's not exactly saying that, but we can see how his words could be construed that way, especially when he's saying salvation for salvation, what's necessary is faith in Christ, not circumcision. So Paul's in hot water. 
Verse 22, what then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. For as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. See, they're recalling the letter, which is recalling the Acts 15 judgment, right? Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, Paul probably did observe a lot of these purification rites and a lot of these things just because he's been a Jew all his life. He's been a Pharisee all his life. And what's going on at this time is, if, if that's your thing, keep on doing it. But it's not necessary for salvation. And we're not going to require that the Gentiles do this for salvation. But let's move along here, uh, if you will. Does that make sense? So Paul's undergoing this purification thing. So what we're seeing here is there is a pastoral concern in Jerusalem about this, isn't there? Now, with all of that in mind, let's go back to Acts or back to Galatians, and I think some of this is going to start to make sense. Now, uh, when back to Galatians two verse eleven, when Peter come back to Ant- when Peter came to Antioch. Now, of course, Antioch is a is a is a church that's been planted because of persecution, right? Upon the persecution of Stephen, everybody scatters out of Jerusalem. They go up. Some people end up in in Antioch. They preach the gospel. So many people come to the faith that a church is established. And Antioch really is becoming kind of a hub of Christianity at this time. It's actually where the the term Christian is coined is in Antioch, right? Just kind of reviewing some history we looked at there. So Peter comes to Antioch and he gets opposed by the Apostle Paul, because before certain men who came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Back to our questions. These men that come from James, are they being sent from James? While we can't be certain about this, I think the evidence weighs that they could very well have been sent by James. For what reason? Okay, James, he's a pastor. In Jerusalem. As a pastor, I can tell you as a pastor, you're hearing about all of these things. You're hearing about all of these things about the Apostle Paul. You're hearing about all this. If you were a pastor in Jerusalem and you're hearing about all of these things, would you want to know if it's really happening? Would you want to know what's happening? How do you go forward? How do you address your congregation if you don't know what's happening? I'm inclined to believe that perhaps he sent these guys to go and see what is going on because of these pastoral concerns. Now, before these guys show up, Peter, Peter's, Peter has no problem. Peter's been shown in Acts. Later, you can look at Acts 10 and Acts 11. You can see Peter's been given a vision about all this, that sheet that comes down with the, the animals, you know, and uh, God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And the end of, you know, the, the, the whole point in that vision is not to call unclean what God has rendered clean. Now, I think Peter, in terms of his personal conviction, is obvious. He has no problem with eating with the Gentiles. But now comes this delegation from James. And I'm inclined to believe that they're from James. 
meaning that they're representative of James and they're here to see what's going on because obviously James is going to need to know what the truth is up there. You would have to as a pastor know what's going on up there. As they show up, Peter starts to withdraw. Now, why is he starting to withdraw? Because Peter is also aware of the pastoral concerns in Jerusalem. These men are pastoring in Jerusalem among the Jews. They're aware of these concerns. Okay, now that takes us to a a, a second question, the circumcision party. Who is the circumcision party? In In the original language here, it simply means people of circumcision or those of circumcision. Would that make these folks identical with the people that came from James? I don't think so. I think, this could, I think this could point to people, this could point to believers who are circumcised, like Peter and Paul and James and all of the other disciples. But this also could describe people who are not believers in Jesus who are circumcised. Because you see, when this issue of circumcision comes up, sometimes it comes up by believers. Sometimes it comes up by false teachers. It's come up by both, hasn't it? So I think the the circumcision party could be either. Now, why is Peter afraid? I think we've already begun to answer that question. It's because of persecution. Now, some commentaries will say, you know, Peter's actions here are hauntingly familiar. You know, this reminds us of Peter on the night that Jesus was arrested, how he denied that he knew Jesus three times. Okay, maybe. Um, Maybe. Uh, Maybe Peter is afraid of personal persecution but Peter's a pastor maybe what Peter's afraid of is that his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are going to get persecuted I think that's more than maybe you know if persecution was running loose here I wouldn't just be worried about me I'd be worried about you too. And that'd be mutual, wouldn't it? I would probably be the main target here. But you wouldn't be exempt from it. You know, I had the privilege of sitting under uh, one professor. Uh, I mentioned him once in a while, Stephen Miller. He was a, um, a missionary to Eritrea in Africa. And at one point, the village where he was ministering was raided, and the women were taken one direction, and the men were taken another, and they were put in steel containers, and they sat in these, they, they, they were gathered in these steel containers in the hot African sun. And they really didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And Stephen being the, now he's not, wasn't just a professor, he became, a, I'm happy to say he became a personal friend of mine. Um, Stephen was dragged out of the trailer at one point and held by gunpoint and was told to, to renounce Jesus. Now, what's going through his mind when that's happened? He doesn't know where his wife is. He doesn't know what they're going to do to his wife. Well, Stephen didn't recant. Stephen says, I can't. You're going to have to do what you're going to have to do, but I can't. I can't recrite. I can't, I can't abandon my Savior. By God's grace, they let him go. Now, if Stephen Miller wants to call Peter a coward, I'm okay with that. But I have never been in that position, so I am not going to call Peter one. See, that's the problem I have with this three-part hypocrisy sermon. What exactly has Peter done? 
It seems to me that Peter is worried as a Christian leader. He's worried about persecution, certainly for his own sake. But what about his family? What about the people in Jerusalem? And for that matter, what effects is this going to have on evangelism of continuing to share the gospel? This can all about shut it off, can it? So he's fearing the circumcision party. He's withdrawing from the Gentiles. I think it's these strands. I think it's these cords that are drawing Peter away. It's drawing him away. But Paul here rightly sees that to try to solve one problem, they're creating a greater problem. What problem is that? Okay, now let's step in the shoes of the Gentiles, which is going to be easier for us to do. Let's get out of the Israelite shoes. We're not Israelites no more. Now we're Gentiles. And we're, you know, here we are. Peter is not in Antioch. He's in Chester. You know, and we've been sitting down the colonies with Peter and we've just been dining with him and it's been great and we're hearing all these stories about Jesus and all this stuff. And here comes this party from James. Now all of a sudden, Peter, he's not hanging out with us no more. What conclusion are you going to come to? It's because those guys are circumcised and we're not circumcised. Maybe we ought to think about getting circumcised and we could really fully be in. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Peter's not preaching a different gospel with his lips. But he's preaching a different gospel with his actions. Does that make sense? And Paul sees it really clearly. And that's why Paul is having this face-to-face confrontation with Peter. And that's why he's using this strong language. Peter, you're distorting the gospel, not with your preaching, but with your actions. Because you're going to lead these people to add circumcision to their faith in Christ for salvation. Now, I think once we begin to understand all of this, I think a whole different set of applications emerges here. I have a couple of thoughts, and I'll close with them. One, at first, I mean, especially with Synod being a week, I am so thankful that we belong to a church that's governed by a plurality of elders. There is no one human being who has the wisdom without any blind spots that would be able to lead the church. Peter couldn't do it. Paul is seeing a major blind spot, really not just with Peter, but really everyone's being carried away. We need each other. And God works through each other. Some of you have had the opportunity to come to a synod. When synod met in um, Beaver Falls a couple of years ago, a couple of you got to go. And, and one of your comments that I heard over and over again was, man, these guys are so smart. They're so wise. And I love the wisdom. And um, I didn't say a whole lot in response to that. I do agree, and I, I know so many of them, and they are. They're, they're smart. They're bright people. But when we're in session together like that, and we're talking about these issues, the wisdom that you often are seeing is not human wisdom. It's not human wisdom. It's answer to prayer because what are we doing? We're praying for sin. We're praying for the Lord to work through all of us as we work through difficult 
problems. James and Peter are in the middle of just, I can't even imagine pastorally how to navigate these waters. I, I, to me, I just, I'm happy that we're in Chester. I'm happy that I'm here. I'm happy. Oh, my goodness. I, I just can't imagine this. I can't imagine this. But how could one person by himself navigate this? Unless you're Jesus, you can't. The only one who would be able to do that would be Jesus himself. That's why I'm so thankful that we're part of a connected body, that we're governed by a plurality of Elders. No one person has the wisdom. Another point is no matter who you are, you're not always right. That includes me. I'm directing that to me first. No matter who you are, you're not always right. I'll go first. Peter wasn't right. If we go with the NIV, he was clearly in the wrong, right, Dan? Clearly in the wrong. I think Paul was using words that are stronger than that. Because Paul is looking back. I mean, you're distorting the gospel, Peter. And if we or an angel or anyone preaches the gospel different, contrary to the one that you've heard, let him be anathema. I think that's in the back of Paul's mind here. In fact, I think it's the reverse. I think Paul's thinking of Peter and what's going on with the Judaizers. That's in his mind that causes him to give us verses 8 and 9. It's strong language. No matter who we are. Something else too. You know, character flaws can sometimes emerge throughout our Christian life, can't they? You know, some commentaries say, you know, Peter's actions here look hauntingly familiar to the night that Jesus was betrayed when he denied Jesus three times. Maybe. I think there's more going on than that. But perhaps some character flaws in Peter are emerging here. And I'll make that application. We all have character flaws, do we not? And, you know, fellas, we have our wives here to remind us. If if we're in any doubt about our character flaws, that could be a discussion on the way home. Sweetie, what are my character flaws? And remind you, if I were to say that to Tammy, I would say, you know, Tammy, we're going to be home in about 10 minutes. Probably not enough time. You're going to have to abbreviate them. (laughs) But all kidding and laughing and joking aside, we do, don't we? And sometimes, you know, the Lord helps us get over these. He helps us make progress in these things. But you never know when they're going to raise their head, do you? Let's be mindful of ourselves that we do have these things. We do have these weaknesses and they do raise their head from time to time. Um, Another is our failure in Christian living and leadership can often compromise the gospel. Let me read that again. Our failure in Christian living and leadership can often compromise the truth of the gospel. That's what's happening, isn't it? Peter has changed the way he's living. And Paul's calling it hypocrisy. Now, what does Paul mean by hypocrisy there? What Paul means by hypocrisy there takes us back to the Greek theater. The word, the, hip, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek theater. And it literally means one who wears a mask. And it described actors and actresses. An actor was a hypocrite. Why? Because they're pretending to be somebody who they're not. Right? And what is Peter doing? Well, Peter's setting aside his convictions, if you will. And he's acting in a way that is opposite of what he really believes. He believes it's fine to eat with the Gentiles. But now this party from James comes and he has changed his behavior. That's what he's guilty of doing. Right? 
He's in leadership. That makes it worse. It's well intended. I think it's well intended. I think it's more than well intended. I think these guys are trying to figure out how in the world are we going to get through this. They want to see their countrymen come to faith in Christ. And they want to avoid unnecessary obstacles to that. They want to avoid unnecessary um, offenses to that. And they're just doing the best they can here. But what's happening in the meantime, Paul rightfully points out, in the meantime of this well-intentioned measure that you're taking here, you're compromising the gospel. Do we have that happening today? Oh, absolutely we do. This is a great text. It's a sleeper. It's one I never hear anyone talking about. In the midst of how should the church... Um, how, how should we deal with the sexual identity today? How should the church deal with the LGBTQ plus movement today? How should we deal with all of these sensitive issues today? This is a great case study for that. That the three-part hypocrisy sermon doesn't even go near. There's so much wisdom to be gained here from that. One is we need each other. We've got to work through each other. But the big message we've got to hear is whatever measure we take, whatever measure we take, we have to be really sure it doesn't end up compromising the truth of the gospel. Does that make sense? I know this is not easy. Believe me, I know it's not easy. Um... On Wednesday morning, I wasn't sure where we were going with this text. Um, Yesterday morning, I still wasn't sure where we were going with this text. Uh, Lord, ready or not, Sunday's coming. Um, You you have no idea how many times I say that to Tammy. Ready or not, Sunday's coming. Um, The paper is due on Sunday morning. But I think it's clear. Um, I think it's clear. Let's um, conclude on a real positive note is that by God's grace, the truth of the gospel has been preserved. Amen. Heavenly Father, so thank you, Lord. Father, many of these passages are so hard. But, oh, Father, they're not hard for you. Oh, Father, forgive us for the times, Lord, where we just skate on the surface of these passages and we could preach this three-part hypocrisy sermon and preach something that is completely accurate and right but misses the wisdom that we have here otherwise than what we would get if we really dig in and try to understand what these men are dealing with. And we get such a bad impression of Peter when we do that, of what Peter's going through. Now, Peter ends up looking like, you know, that guy that is not a believer and doesn't even act like a believer but talks like one when he's in public. That's not Peter, Lord. We know that's not how Peter acted. We could really shame him in a way that's shameful if we're not careful. But, Father, I think as we look at this, we see that just how difficult this had to have been. And, Father, that's where we find such comfort. To know that in the midst of these difficulties, I can't even begin to imagine what ministering in Jerusalem was like during that time. And that comforts us, Lord, because we see that you got them through that. 
that you continue to build your church in the midst of all of these tensions, these social political tensions, amidst all of those things. And that gives us that gives us encouragement this morning, Lord, as we think about how we're going to continue to share the gospel and grow in our faith in the midst of all of the things that are going on in our own day. Well, Father, may this passage open up a whole, just a whole new light for us, Lord, as we continue to walk. Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.